Hate crimes are dangerous and insidious, but you have the power to help stop them. If you witness or experience a hate crime, a criminal offense motivated by race, religion, disability, sexual orientation, or other characteristics, you can report it to the FBI, who is committed to protecting communities and supporting victims. Submit a tip at 800-CALL-FBI or tips.fbi.gov. The FBI is here to help. Protecting our communities together. Report hate crimes. We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network Verizon. Best and most reliable based on Root Metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks. There were witches living up the street from the house where we grew up. Or so we thought. Double, double, boil and trouble. Fire, burn and cauldron bubble. This is who killed Teresa. The queen of light took her bow and then she turned to go. Prince of peace, embrace the goo and walk the night alone. Who doesn't the dark of night seem to be more? Dark Lord rides in force tonight, and time will tell us was called the Vilnovs, and um, they lived up the block in Pierrefonds on uh, Pavilion Street, and they were most uh, memorable um, uh, for Halloween. Each Halloween, they put on a big spectacle. My memory of it is that uh, there were three sisters, and they dressed up as like the three witches from Macbeth. Uh, oh, hang on, I'll go outside and turn around three times and come back. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, I said the word. Um, uh, but they dress up as the witches and they had like a cauldron on the front lawn. And my memory of it is that they had um, like a strobe light and a fog machine with fog coming out of the... Uh, cauldron and this was the highlight of any uh halloween evening that you wanted to end up at some point at the vilnovs to to see this spectacle and it was um i mean they were method man uh we thought they were real witches i mean you know it was in parts terrifying to approach that house and but it really really exciting right and and then from lore, you know, you'd go like, well, if they give you an apple, don't eat it. 
because, you know, there's a razor blade in it. Uh, you know, mom would say, you know, don't eat the candy. It might be poison, you know, this kind of thing. And, um, and the, the, yeah, the Villeneuve's really, really kind of chilling and, and scary and certainly had an influence on uh, me, on us. I mean, for years, for the last two decades, I've done a Halloween display. I started it in, in L.A., actually, when we lived in uh, uh, Culver City. A UFO, right? Made out of tinfoil. With little aliens made out of tinfoil. Uh, and a strobe light, of course. Um, um, that, you know, that is a huge influence on me. The, the Vilnas as, as the three... Uh, as the three witches, right? Yeah. And then what's in the what's in the cauldron? I mean, at that time, a black light in a fog machine was a big deal. You know, you didn't just go to your Halloween party store and buy that kind of stuff. You needed to have theatrical connections to get that that kind of stuff back then. You couldn't just go buy a ten dollar strobe light. You you know, you practically had to go to an industrial light and magic, you know, to, to, to get one. Um, I remember one time being inside the Vilnov's house and I don't know why I was, it was during the day and I don't know why I would have been there because the sisters would have been much older than me and really, you know, way cooler than me. I had no reason to be there. Um, and I can't really remember who I was with. I think I was with Mike Dau, a friend of mine, possibly Mike, and um, I remember distinctly Led Zeppelin playing in the house. And I think it was the Battle of uh, the um, the Battle of Evermore uh, with the woman from Fairport Convention and on background vocals. Um, and in any case, it was Led Zeppelin. And uh, I think it's one of the first times I heard Led Zeppelin because you... Um, you know, back in the day, you were not really allowed to have, you know, that kind of <laughs> music um, in the house. Um, your mom was not going to buy you Led Zeppelin IV, um, you know, or Black Sabbath or Alice Cooper. She was going to buy you like the best of Gordon Lightfoot or you know, like a, a nice Cat Stevens album something something like that I recently found uh, a review of Led Zeppelin 4 from the Montreal Gazette uh, from a Saturday edition of the 1972 Gazette, where the, the writer starts the review with, I've never been much of a Led Zeppelin fan. <laughs> and, and shut the fuck up. Um, <laughs> um, but um, he goes on to say that it's a pretty good album because it, it, it's more acoustic. And of course, he gets to Stairway to Heaven, and um, uh, Stairway to Heaven is a musical odyssey, and I'll bet it's the best thing that the current Led Zeppelin ever does. Um, yeah, and uh, clearly he uh, never heard um, 
physical graffiti. But anyway, uh, most of the Zep songs start out strong and stay that way. Stairway builds up to a slow but surely never breaking out of uh, of control on the way. And here's the here's the part that I find interesting. The most plausible thesis I've heard is that the song is about heroin becoming a substitute for God. And stop right there. So I can I can guarantee you, you know, my mom was not that rock savvy, but she read the Saturday Gazette. I can guarantee you she read that and she said, there's no fucking way I'm buying that album for my kids. So that's why you wouldn't get Led Zeppelin 4 in the house. You'd, like I say, you'd have to you'd have to borrow it. I mean, it's the same thing. It was the devil's music. The same thing with, um, with, uh, um, for Christ's sakes, Black Sabbath and Ozzy Osbourne that, uh, you know, the first Sabbath album I think came out in the, in uh, January, February of 70. Right. Uh, Um, and then bam, um, by, by the fall, I think by October, November, they released their second album, Paranoid. And those those records just weren't <laughs> gonna get in the house, but you'd find them at the scary witch's house, like the Villeneuve's, right? Um, now I bring all of this up because uh, and inter- interesting. Recently, I uh, I had the good fortune to spend some time with my brother, and as we always do, we talk about <laughs> shit like this, <laughs> not important things. Uh, and, and this came up. I said, do you, do you remember the house with the three witches on Halloween? He said, of course. I said, do you remember their names? He said, no, I don't remember their names. And then he goes, I think I was in that house once. And of course, then I'm thinking, well, was it you? Was it you and me who were in the house? And that we have this shared memory, but we don't have a memory of each other being with us. Um, and I just, I remember the kitchen being really, uh, uh, you know, it lived up to what how you thought the three witches lived, right? Um, you know, my mom had a sp- spice rack, right, that consisted of salt and pepper. These guys had jars of, you know, uh, I, I, it would it it would not blow anybody's mind by today to have you know fresh herbs and spices, you know. Uh, uh, sprig of rosemary is probably what it was and probably some pot and 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 but who knows in our imagination right there was eye of newt right there was frog of toad there was all manner of things in these jars in this kitchen that uh you know they were probably wiccan uh it's what we call them today um but at the time mind-blowing so I now I bring all that back up, and I, I'm going to roll it back because in doing a whole shitstorm of research in the last year, I actually found a Montreal Gazette article on the Vilnovs, and I've been saving it for this October for this express purpose. I've I have not read it. I want to see if my memory jibes um, with what is in this article, because memory's fickle, right? Uh, I, I give you, I'll give you an example that I was thinking about recently. My sister was a great uh, bike enthusiast, liked riding, had her custom-made Batecchia Italian bike, um, real fast racing bike. Um, and if you asked me from memory what inspired her to become interested in bike racing, 
I would have guessed. Well, she probably saw that movie Breaking Away, um, which was nominated for a slew of Academy Awards about a, a young guy who just wants to be like the Italian uh, bike racing uh, heroes uh, that he knows growing up in some uh, industrial town in the United States. Um, she was probably inspired by that movie. That 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 sounds exactly right. You, you see, the only problem with that is is the aspect of false memory. Breaking Away wasn't released until 1979, and she was already dead by then. She died in 1978. So that's that's how uh, false memories can really fuck with uh, fuck with your head and uh, your beliefs sometimes. So on a more gentle note. Uh, you give me a second here. I'm gonna I'm gonna hit pause, and I'm gonna go back and I'm gonna read this article on the Villeneuve's, and then I'm gonna kind of fill in between um, my memory and and the reality of that time. This article is is from uh, Halloween, October 31st, 1977, the Montreal Gazette. Just stay here for a second. Okay, this is actually pretty good and consistent with uh, memory. Um, it's all the more interesting because it's next to an article entitled Hitler Had a Son, Claims Historian. <laughs> so, um, it's not three sisters. It is a mother, Lisa Villeneuve, and her two daughters, Vivian and Debbie. And I won't read the whole thing, but parts of it are, are actually pretty interesting. Kids Bewitched into Safe Halloween. Lisa Villeneuve is a witch. She has recipes for lovers and paupers and puts on a special show which is full of tricks and treats every Halloween. Kids who know a good thing when they see it, and I did, have been forming a mini Woodstock on the Villeneuve's front lawn in Pierrefonds for the last 10 years. Last year, a woman drove all the way from Toronto just for this says Villeneuve hauntingly. So what's this? Villeneuve and her two daughters, Debbie, 17, and Vivian, 15, are all serious adherents of the occult arts. Ten years ago, when real weirdos began putting pins and razor blades in trick-or-treat apples, so not them, Villeneuve decided her street needed more lights, anything to put it in a... a spotlight to discourage the would-be child killer. What? I don't know exactly how we jumped to there, but, you know, so be it. Uh, With her background in the occult, I can't remember how long ago it was that I became interested, she says. She translated her wishes into a well-lit cauldron on the front lawn, weird sounds and special lights. The lights and the sounds are just a way of protecting the kitties, she says. She also mildly laments what her good intentions have led to. Now it's expected every year that me and my daughters have to help out. Uh, We give out about 100 and... 
what is that? 1,200 treats, 1,200 treats every Halloween. Already cars driven by parents have started parking outside our house because the kids want to see what we're preparing. Villeneuve, who is a housewife most of the time, does not take her witchcraft lightly. It isn't just for the kiddies. With assistance from Debbie, she lectures on the occult throughout Pierrefonds. What does the occult mean to the Villeneuves? Basically, it's a belief that you can do certain things you think you can do. We do a few spells at home, she says, and pauses for effect. Uh, and then she goes on to describe like a basic love spell. Light the flame, bright the fire, red is the color of desire. It sounds like a sticks lyric, right? Light the flame, bright the fire. <laughs> I'm not making fun of the Vilmas. I think it's uh, really, really interesting. Um, so there you go. That's our kickoff to um, Halloween about a series of um, strangulation, suffocation, murders in Montreal in the early 1950s. And I'll let you off the hook right now. They're not connected. Um, they're connected uh, uh, thematically, um, but in terms of, um, you know, some serial killer wandering the hotels of Montreal, that's, that's just not it uh, today. So don't be listening to this and trying to thread that needle because it's it's not going to happen. Um, for the most part, I'll read the articles because uh, I think they're telling in a language that um, was used in the 1950s to describe um, crime and victims uh, and offenders. I think it's unique for that. Uh, so we'll kind of we'll go through these. The the first one is uh, from June uh, 1950. And, and, and just, let's be honest, um, um, uh, hotels are inherently creepy to begin with, from The Shining to The Tower of Terror at uh, Disneyland. I worked at an old hotel in St. John, New Brunswick, the Admiral, Admiral Beatty, which was one of the last of the sort of colonial-type uh hotels on the, you know, railway uh, junket uh, uh, whistle stop kind of thing. And it, you know, it was creepy. I was a bellhop, bellboy, whatever you call it. And, uh, you know, it was, the, there was a service elevator, you know, with one of those gates that you close and, you know, the, the elevator handle that you kind of pull down and then deploy to go up or, or down. That was the back service elevator. I think the BD was, um, hmm, 
12 stories high. I think it's a, it's a, uh, it's a senior's home now, but there was, there was something definitely creepy about that place, uh, uh, man. So, um, I find old hotels, uh, interesting. So, uh, we're going to talk about these, uh, Montreal hotel murders from the 1950s. Hotel Slaying Launches Hunt for Strangler, Montreal Gazette, June 14, 1950. Discovery of a 37-year-old woman's body bearing marks around the neck, throat, and abdomen in a downtown hotel room yesterday afternoon touched off a citywide police hunt for a young man, apparently a sadist, who is believed to have strangled the woman yesterday morning. Death of the woman identified through fingerprints as Helen Bomber, of no fixed address in Montreal and described as a, quote, streetwalker by police, was termed definitely a case of murder by Detective Captain Romeo Longprie and Detective Lieutenant Russell Senecal, both men of the homicide squad. Police said the woman was a native of Berwick, Ontario. Earlier this morning, detectives were combing the downtown district and other parts of the city in an effort to locate a man between 26 and 28 years of age who registered under the name of Sweeney at the Grand Central Hotel, 762 Windsor Street, around 10 o'clock Monday night. The woman's body was found in room 5 on the second floor of the four-story hotel shortly before 4 p.m. yesterday. The room was one which had been assigned to Sweeney less than 24 hours earlier. A chambermaid, Miss Francois Servin, found the body when she rapped at the door at 3.55 p.m. to ask the occupant if she wished to rent the room for another day. On one-night stays, the rooms are usually vacant by 3 p.m., but we always give the occupant another hour if he's not ready by then, Miss Servant reported. I opened the door, expecting to see a man in there, but instead I noticed a woman lying in the single bed with a bedspread covering half her face. I lifted the bedspread a bit and finally fainted when I saw face and neck. I was so unnerved I ran the wrong way in the hall before finally reaching the manager to tell him, There's a woman in room five, and she looks dead, the chambermaid added. First police officials to reach the scene after being summoned by Ame Forte, joint owner of the hotel, were Captain Horace Thiverge and two special investigators from station number Six, when a quick examination revealed marks on the woman's body, homicide squad detectives were immediately called in. Before it was taken to the morgue, where an autopsy will be performed this morning to determine the exact cause of death, Dr. Rosario Fontaine, provincial medical leader expert, examined the corpse and said the woman apparently had been strangled to death, possibly in the early hours of the morning. The body lay outstretched in the bed. Police said there were skin abrasions 
on parts of the body, indicating the possibility that a sadist had strangled the woman. Police said the woman's clothes were found heaped on a chair. Her purse was empty, and there was no clue to her identity. Detective Lieutenant Senecal added that police had obtained a description of the young man who rented the room Monday night and gave his name as Sweeney. Police said that the man apparently had stepped out around 11 p.m. that night and had returned to the room accompanied by the woman. Two empty beer bottles were found in the room. Hotel employees and residents said they had not seen the woman enter the building and had not heard any sounds of a struggle or outcries emanating from room number five. It was Montreal's first murder since the fatal shooting of RCMP Alex Gammon by a frustrated bank bandit on Beaver Hall Hill three weeks ago. I was too drunk and I got mad, says Strangler, giving self up. Montreal Gazette, June 16th, 1950. A dark-haired, handsome man walked into RCMP headquarters in Montreal yesterday and confessed that he had strangled 37-year-old Helen Balmer to death in the hotel room because I was too drunk and I got mad at her. Held by homicide detectives last night as a material witness for a coroner's inquest this morning in the strangulation killing was Gerard Royer, a 36-year-old war veteran employed as a cook by a religious order since July 1949. Detective Lieutenant Russell Seneca, head of the homicide squad, said fingerprints found in the hotel room were identical to those of Royer. In his statement, Royer is said to have told police he had been drinking heavily since he started a week's holiday last Friday. He said he had picked up the Bauer woman in a downtown hotel, drank a lot of beer with her, and then rented a room at the Grand Central Hotel. Royer allegedly returned to his job the following day and realized police were on his trail when he saw the murder story in the morning newspaper. He said he began drinking heavily to forget the whole thing, but he couldn't sleep last night, detectives reported. Yesterday, he thought of giving himself up and started walking west on St. Catherine Street West. Walking up to the switchboard operator, he said he wanted to speak to somebody. Constable J.S. Weir was summoned, and the man turned to him and asked if he knew about the strangulation killing in a Montreal hotel room this week. When Constable Weir replied that he was familiar with the case, Royer said, I'm the man who killed the woman. I got mad at her, and I killed her because we had had too much to drink. Royer, who is alleged to have registered at the hotel under his mother's maiden name, Sweeney, told police he wanted to surrender to police Wednesday afternoon, but I didn't have enough guts, so I took to drinking some more. Police said Royer, a native of Luzon, Quebec, enlisted in the Canadian Army in December 1941. He left the Army in 1946, 
worked in Montreal for some time, went to Toronto, and returned here last July to work as a cook and a handyman in a nun's residence. Police said that his only criminal record on file was a 15-day prison stretch for theft while a servant in Quebec 14 years ago. And um, to conclude the story, Royer is convicted of manslaughter by jury in October 1950. Justice Wilfred uh, Lazour handed Royer a life sentence, and it's unknown if he, um, how much time he had actually served in that case. So that's it. That's Gerard Royer couple of interesting things there. So the sadist, um, for reasons that are unclear to me, the first article talking about a sexual sadist, perhaps there was some evidence that was not disclosed to reach that conclusion. But this sadist turns out to be this dark-haired, handsome man, as he's described, and former um, World War II veteran. The hotel, Wind, the Windsor Hotel is very interesting to... Um, uh, that's not some flop house, or it wasn't some flop house. Actually, really nice hotel on Windsor Street, Windsor Avenue, um, in Montreal, just up from Windsor Station, the train station. Uh, the, the building's still there, but the hotel is gone. But I think I think the they kept the actual ballrooms from the Windsor, and you can, uh, if you're ever in Montreal, you can actually go and have a a tour of those. So yes, I find this interesting because I, it's like a one-off killing. Um, the whole thing is resolved within two days. He, Royer has a pang of consciousness. He, he got drunk. Uh, he probably would have gotten away with it, with everything uh, had he kept his mouth shut, had he had the ability to keep his mouth shut. Although he had the prior conviction 14, 15 years earlier, I doubt they would have kept fingerprint records on file for 14, 15 years. So despite the fact that he left prints behind, it's very, it's very likely that um, the, the murder of the streetwalker uh, would have gone un, unsolved. Um, and uh, a little more to say about this later. Let's just move on to our, our next case. Woman found strangled. Man sought. Montreal Gazette, July 5th, 1952. Less than 15 hours after she and a man rented a room in a downtown hotel, a young red-headed woman was found choked to death yesterday afternoon in what police termed a likely case of murder. Police identified the woman as Betty Stewart, 32, alias Betty Llewellyn a native of England who came to Canada about a year ago. Discovery of the woman's nude body lying across the foot of the bed touched off a citywide manhunt for the man... <laughs> Here's the manhunt again. Who at 1.10 a.m. signed the hotel registry as Mr. and Mrs. Green and gave their address as St. Hilaire, Quebec. Mr. White and Mr. Pink. 
Police believe the man gave a fictitious name when he and the woman rented a second-story room at the hotel. You think? Detective Captain Henry Bond, head of the homicide squad, said the man was wanted for questioning in connection with the woman's death. Police were called at 3.40 p.m. after Mrs. J.W. Connolly, wife of the hotel owner and two maintenance men, discovered the body. Mrs. Connolly told the Gazette reporter that at 3 p.m., checking out time, repeated knocking at the door went unanswered. The nude body of the woman lay across the foot of the single bed. A blood-soaked towel had been half-stuffed in her mouth. Her face was also covered with blood. Assisting Captain Bond and first on the scene were Detective Sergeants Daryl McGrath and Mark Maurice of the Homicide Squad. Now, we later learned that uh, Betty Stewart was, of course, was also an alias, and her real name is, it's not even Fluellen, it's, um, or Llewellyn, it's Elizabeth Marjorie Richards. The murder has it's never been solved, and uh, the autopsy revealed she had died of suffocation and had multiple fractures to her jaw and a broken nose. I'm just going to mention this next case briefly because um, I want you to hear it in context of all four cases. But this is the Back River murder, and we're going to come back to this and do a full episode on the Back River murder. But um, I just want you to, um, to hear the intro and let it sit with you for a while. On October 5th, 1953, two Quebec Hydro employees discovered the body of an unidentified young woman in the Back River, now known as Riviere des Prairies, running between the islands of Montreal and Laval. She's found near a hydroelectric plant and visitation island, and this is between Ahuntsic and Montreal North. The victim was between 25 and 35 years of age, weighed approximately 150 pounds, and had blue eyes with light brown hair. She had been gagged and strangled with her own skirt. A 20-pound block of cement was tied with a rope around her neck. Her hands, knees, ankles were bound with half-inch rope. The body was badly decomposed, having been in the water for five to nine months. Two fingers remained on her left hand. From these, police attempted to establish fingerprints.
our last hotel murder is a bit of a puzzler. On Tuesday, May 15th, 1956, a 33-year-old woman registers at a hotel in what we presume is the Plateau region of Montreal under the name of Edith Miller. The woman rents a radio from the front desk. The following evening, a bellboy named Andre Bernard goes to her room and collects the rent on the radio. This is the last sighting of Edith Miller. When maid service attempts to clean the room the following afternoon, they are unable to gain entry. On Friday, May 18th, bellboy Gilles Gabriot, accompanied by a young boy, Jacques Bouchard, the 16-year-old son of a hotel chambermaid, climbs along the ledge of the adjoining room overlooking the hotel's marquee and gains entry through the window. Once inside, Gabriel and Bouchard made the macabre discovery. The body of Edith Miller, who turned out to be Betty Sloan of 653 Esplanade Avenue, was found lying on the bed, bound in blankets, two bandage-type gags, one over her mouth and one over her nose, were tied to the back of her head. The room had been bolted with safety locks that could only be opened from inside the room. The rented radio was still playing when the body was discovered. I find these types of murders very different from anything we've talked about, particularly sexual murderers, um, drifters of the 1970s, right? Um, wouldn't really have that. that. Um, at this time, I mean, the, um, Eisenhower didn't sign the Federal Highway Act until the year of this last murder, 1956, so we didn't get the interstate highway system shortly thereafter in the United States and a little a little after that in Canada. So not not the ability for these these killers to on on the hunt and roaming and looking for um vulnerable uh prey where you can and you can dump the body miles away from where you committed the crime. This is very different. This is in an urban setting, this is what you do. You pick somebody up uh in a bar and you have a drink and you take them back to a hotel 
Um, and whether it was your intention, maybe it was to murder them there, or maybe things just got out of hand and uh, you wind up strangling them and then you just you exit the room, you close the door. In, unless <laughs> it's the case of, of Ms. Sloan, the last story. How the hell did that, that door get locked? Did the guy go out the window over the marquee the same way that two kids got in? We'll never know. 70 years at least uh, have passed. Um, these cases are uh, gone cold, baby. Uh, they will never be. They will never be uh, solved. Anyway, I want to uh, end today on something uh, light. Does anybody <coughs> know about Matt Knight? Matt Knight in... Uh, in some um, uh, cities, it was known as Devil's Night. It's the night before Halloween. Um, and and I think this is a purely Canadian phenomenon that had its origins in, uh, in Montreal. The first known mention of Mad Night I can find is in the Gazette um, on... Um, uh, Halloween evening, uh, 1936. It's quite uh, hysterical. Uh, NDG boys frustrate precaution of elders. NDG is Notre-Dame-de-Grasse. It's a neighborhood in uh, Montreal. Last night was doormat night in Notre-Dame-de-Grasse. Result? 50 doormats are missing. Twenty ash cans have disappeared. Ten windows are broken. What is doormat night? It's a pre-Halloween celebration started some years ago. It's believed that residents of the West End get wise to Halloween pranks, and, and on that night they take in all doormats, ash cans, and take all necessary precautions against any damage being done. In order to fool these persons, the youngsters have started the doornat mat night, which always falls a few days before Halloween night. No one knows when, as the day is chosen by a certain group of boys. Police are now searching for the missing doormats, ash cans, and are on the lookout for those responsible for the broken windows. Uh, Matt Knight, yeah, we celebrated Matt Knight. We had more fun with Matt Knight probably than at Halloween as we got older. You know, and I, my memory of is that the stakes kept getting higher and higher. I don't remember actually. I know it It was called Matt Knight because you stole a mat, a doormat, but we never did that. We would just egg somebody's house, you know, or wet toilet paper roll thrown at the windows. or, And then it became like you'd, you'd, you'd take the, pumpkin guts and put them in a baggie and you know poke holes in the baggie and and throw it at the window and you know that never really worked i don't i don't <laughs> it's a horrible idea just take the handful of crap and throw it at the window and as i say this thing's got higher and higher right so you you, you light a bag of dog shit on fire and put it on somebody's front door and ring the doorbell and they come out and you know, in theory, they're going to stop on, stomp on it. That's a hearty horror, horror. That's hilarious. But uh, of course, in in reality, they never it never went that 
compared to that level of our uh, desires and expectations. You know, usually somebody would come out and just kind of look at it and be mystified and then go back in and close the door. <laughs> and then, you know, it got more elaborate. I mean, one bag of dog shit wasn't enough. How about we light seven bags of dog shit on, on fire? Yeah, that'll, that'll show them, you know, open the door, close the door. You know, the thing's extinguished but by the time they answer the door, this this kind of thing. Mad Night, Devil's Night. I've I've read about it a little bit in, in later, like in the fifties and papers in the, like Calgary, Edmonton, um, certainly in Ontario. Rarely have I seen it in the States. Although I've have heard mention that it did occur in like those border towns, uh Detroit bordering Windsor, Ontario, etc. Kind of bled down from there. That's our show for today. Uh, this has been Who Killed Teresa. Um, if you like what you hear, please give us a, uh, I, I don't know, a rating, a, a share, a hug, something. Share the podcast with somebody else. How, how about that? There's a great idea. Uh, we're on social media platforms, Spotify, Instagram, Twitter is at Teresa Lore at T-H-E-R-E-S-A-A-L-L-O-R-E. Follow us on, um, Facebook. It's just, uh, Teresa Lore, the podcast. And, um, we're going to go out today with, um, a song by, a. Montreal cult classic band called The Haunted uh, from the late 60s uh, funky little blues number called 125 um, from the late 60s that I that I really like uh, I've been your host uh, John Allure have yourselves a great great day
In a rapidly changing world, people wonder more and more about where their food comes from and how it was grown. The farmers who grow America's corn understand how important this is and want to share the stories from our farms of how we are working to grow an incredible crop that can be an answer to sustainability questions and is grown by men and women who value the air, water, soil, and our natural resources just like you. To find out more about how corn farmers are working to feed and fuel a vibrant economy and healthy planet, visit ncga.com. NCGA, a commitment to the future. The perfect campaign is the perfect music. That's why premium beat tracks are produced by award-winning musicians at world-class studios. Plus, our license gives you tracks for a lifetime. Pay once and never again. Save 25% on your next track at premiumbeat.com royalty dash free slash podcast.